0: All right. So welcome, everyone, uh, to the final uh, meeting of 2021. Uh, excited to see you all today. Uh, and again, thanks to you all for tuning in and really being a part of this uh, commercial real estate group over the last year. It really has meant a lot. And uh, we've learned quite a few lessons over the past year and had almost over 20 speakers uh, to talk about different commercial real estate topics. So in today's you know episode, we're going to talk about some of the top lessons we learned from some of the uh, speakers uh, that we've had over the course of the last year. So we'll go ahead and get started. Um, so really, for those of you guys who are tuning in for the first time, uh, really, this, is, this meetup is called the Commercial Real Estate 101 Meetup. We also utilize this in a podcast format. And the purpose of the Commercial Real Estate 101 Meetup is to be the go-to resource for people who are interested in learning about the many facets of commercial real estate. Uh, We advertise these meetups on LinkedIn, Meetup, um, and various other platforms as well, such as Eventbrite. Uh, So if you guys are tuning in, feel free to come back in 2022. It is a phenomenal meetup where we get to learn a lot about commercial real estate and then make connections with people in the commercial real estate industry across the nation and really the world. We've had people tuning in from all across the world, which has been a really, really cool thing to see um so that's just kind of a brief overview who we are and what we do and now let's dive into some of the top lessons we've learned in 2021 again we, we couldn't fit in every single speaker that we've had over the course of the year otherwise we would be here for you know several hours I mean there's just so many things that we have learned over the course of 2021 so what I thought I'd do is to pick out a few speakers that had some significantly profound ideas to share and then we're going to go through some of the highlights of some of the lessons that were shared, so that you guys can, you know, take these with you into 2022. And if you guys would want to learn more about uh, the, that particular episode, feel free to tune in via either the YouTube channel if you're watching this on YouTube, or if you're watching this on the podcast format, uh, they do have their corresponding episode on the platform as well. So feel free to dive into those, and you know, you'll have a good opportunity to learn more about these individuals. All right. So let's go ahead and dive into the lessons learned. Uh, what I thought I what I wanted to do was talk about. I think seven eight people is what I what I what I allotted for just to make sure we have enough time. So let's go ahead and dive into our first individual. So actually, one of our first speakers of 2021 was actually Chad Griffiths. Chad Griffiths is a a partner at NAI Global in Edmonton. So he is in the commercial real estate brokerage side, but he's also an investor and his specialization is industrial real estate. So in this particular episode, we talked about what industrial real estate is and the things you need to take into consideration as you're looking for industrial real estate opportunities. So first in the episode, we define what exactly industrial real estate is, because there is a common misconception about what it is. There's actually three types of industrial real estate, one being manufacturing, uh, which involves heavy, heavy machinery and, uh, you know, utilizing more land to be able to store materials, Uh, warehousing, which is what's probably the most popular over the last decade or so, which involves logistics, such as you know Amazon and other large logistics companies that are moving products and storing products in a location, then transporting it to other places around the world. And they usually require higher ceilings and uh, more expansive space to be able to utilize because they store a lot of products on site. And then there's flex space, which has also become extremely popular, in particular for those businesses that do utilize or are logistics companies as well, but also. Contractors that need some office space in the front, and then utilize some, some of the warehouse in the back as well. So, one of the things we dove into in this particular episode is analyzing industrial opportunities. Um, depending on which market you're in, uh, there may be certain demand for different product for different property types. In his particular market, Edmonton, it is heavily heavy in the oil and gas industry, and so manufacturing has a bigger footprint than maybe somewhere in the middle of the country, for example, here in Louisville, Kentucky, we don't really have a significant amount of uh, oil reserves. And so manufacturing isn't nearly as large of a percentage of our industrial inventory as it would be in, let's say Edmonton or some other, uh, you know, Texas market, for example. So first off, you just really need to get a feel for what's available within your market and what the demand within that market is. So talking to some commercial real estate agents in your, in your area, you can start to get a feel of some of the calls that they receive on a regular basis. So I know, for example, we get a lot of calls for people who are looking for some form of flex space. So there are contractors that need, you know, five to 10,000 square feet. They need a thousand to 2000 square foot of office and the rest being warehouse. Those are calls we get on a pretty regular basis. And so I can tell you from, from the market dynamics within this area, that type of property type could be a value within Louisville. And if you're looking at places like LA, New York city, other parts around the country, if you contact people who are active in that area on a regular basis, they'll be able to give you an idea of what that market looks like as well. So, from a financial analysis standpoint, similar to other property types, you're going to look at what the net operating income of, of these particular properties are. The good thing about industrial real estate is that oftentimes these properties are uh, triple net properties, meaning that the landlord, the tenant is responsible for paying their pro rata share of property taxes, insurance, and general maintenance on the property. And so the landlord is able to pass along a lot of those expenses to, to the tenant. So the NOI tends to be you know pretty strong, in particular now where industrial real estate is such a strong investment opportunity, there's just a huge demand for industrial investment property. And so uh, part of that financial analysis is getting a feel for what the cap rates are in that area. And then based on what the net operating income and what the potential net operating income is based on fixing up the property and improving it as well could be a value to you. Next up is zoning. Uh, this is something that that Chad has um, direct uh, experience with. He actually had a property that he had to go through the rezoning process on. And he even explained that it is a very much a cumbersome process. There's a lot of moving parts. And a lot of times you you may or may not know whether it's going to go through. My broker actually had had was under contract to purchase a property that they were going to turn into a multi, uh, multi-tenant retail center. And unfortunately, after about 18 months of Going through the process of zoning, they were unable to get the zoning that they needed to. And so, again, it can be a very cumbersome process, a very laborious process. But uh, if if the, if that location is not properly zoned for your use or properly zoned for the use that you want there, then you, you really need to consider whether or not it is something you want to take on because it's no there's no guarantees that zoning is going to go through. And if it is going to go through, it may take you months, if not years. And also, you know, it can be a significant expense as well. So that's one of the things to consider. And then finally, which is probably one of the more important things to consider as you're looking at these opportunities is what's known as functional obsolescence. Functional obsolescence is characteristics of the building that make it no longer attractive to the current tenant base. So historically, let's say 20, 30 years ago, ceiling heights were not nearly as high as they were before. So you may see some older industrial properties that have 12 or 14 foot ceiling heights, which back then was, you know, Vogue. That's what a lot of people were looking for. But nowadays with such an increase in warehousing and logistics companies, that's considered functional obsolete, functionally obsolete because those types of tenants are not attracted to places that have those type of ceiling heights. So you have to really get a feel for what characteristics of buildings are and are they currently in line with what the market's expecting? Because if not, it may be extremely expensive for you to remediate that issue, or it may just make your building completely unattractive to the current tenant base. And so understanding functional obsolescence is key to make sure that you're actually getting a property that is worthwhile for you to pursue. And then finally, the last thing, one of the one of the other lessons that we learned from Chad was the supply chain issues going forward. Uh, we talked about how, how long it was going to take us to get back to some semblance of normalcy that we saw back in 2019. And really what we determined was that it's probably going to take several years before the supply chain starts to normalize. Again, there's, there's already been a backlog for a long period of time, so it's going to take many years of increasing production in order to catch up back with demand. So we were thinking, you know, it's probably going to take, you know, two, three, four, five years before we start seeing what we used to expect as far as the supply chain is concerned. And so those are some of the lessons that we learned from Chad um, in, this, in the slides, which I'll be posting in the description You can click on the episode link and learn a little bit more about, you know, the the 30 or I mean, 40 to 50 minute interview, I I believe is is what it was. Um, You can learn some of the, you know, more granular things that we discussed within that episode. Number two is a a very common name uh, amongst the commercial real estate circles, and that is Yona Weiss. Uh, We talked about a tax saving strategy called cost segregation. Uh, So now you may be wondering what exactly is cost segregation? Uh, it, the concept itself is accelerated depreciation. So what this means is that let's imagine that you buy a commercial property. It's a you know a million dollar commercial proper, property, eight hundred thousand of which is associated to that particular building, not necessarily the land, because you cannot depreciate land. So what the logic is is if you if you were going to buy a building like that, you can depreciate the building if it's a residential property or apartment building at a twenty on a, 27 and a half year schedule. Now if it's a commercial property you can you can you can depreciate it at a 39 year schedule meaning you could take about 2.6% of that basis in depreciation each and every year now in order to improve or increase the amount of tax deductions you can take on a yearly basis that's where cost segregation comes into play essentially what would happen is that an engineer would go on site and individually look at the components of the building and then allow you to depreciate them on different schedules so for example if you're looking at a floor uh, the you know some some vinyl flooring for example that's not going to last 27 and a half years or 30 years. Maybe it only lasts 10 or 15 years. And so the engineer is going to say, okay, for the, this flooring you could depreciate it on a 10-year schedule. For furniture you can depreciate it on a five year five year schedule, for example. And you know all these different different components it's going to tell you how 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 quickly you can depreciate it. And so when you start adding up all the 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 characteristics or the components of that building and then depreciating them on an accelerated schedule you could take a larger portion of depreciation early on in your ownership, therefore increase your tax savings early on within that ownership. And so it can be an extremely powerful tool uh, for investors to be able to keep more of their money within the property. So as far as tax benefits are concerned, uh, there's two types of benefits, one being passive, meaning that if you're a passive investor buying a property, we're not necessarily buying a property, but investing in the fund or the or the the syndication to be able to buy that property, you can offset the investment income from that property with the, depreci- the, the depreciation you take on a year to year basis. So if you make let's say fifty thousand a year in cash flow from that building, and you have sixty thousand dollars in depreciable de- depreciation, you can take that fifty thousand amount, which is your cash flow. You can offset that fifty thousand dollar amount. You can't use that extra ten thousand dollars for your own. You know, personal income that you make from your W 2 job. However, if you're a real estate professional, this is where it can become quite interesting is that you can actually use the depreciation to now offset your income as well that you make from your brokerage business or in other investments as well if you're a full time investor. So, as take the previous example, just for example, let's say that you make $100,000 as a broker in your day to day operations. And then you also, make $50,000 from this particular investment property that you're part of uh, the, the syndication of, well, let if you if you can take, if you take $75,000 in depreciation, that single year, you can offset the passive income, which is the $50,000. And then with that remaining $25,000, you can use that to offset your income that you make from your brokerage in, uh, income. Therefore, the, the amount of money that you earned for that year is $75,000. Now, that can be a significant tax savings because now your $50,000 from passive income no longer, you don't pay taxes on that, nor do you pay taxes on the $25,000 that you depreciated as well. So, as you can see, as you start scaling in income and you have more and more properties to depreciate, you can start seeing where it could be quite a bit uh, of, of tax savings on that front. Along with that, Yona uh, Weiss does run a LinkedIn commercial real estate challenge, uh, he does several throughout the year. I would highly encourage you guys to get involved if you can. Uh, I've been a part of three so far and it's definitely improved my engagement on, on the platform. Um, and again, it's just a good opportunity for you to meet great people within the commercial real estate industry across the world. Uh, and you know, if, I, if you do get involved in the challenge, I would highly encourage you to really have a, have an, a conversation with people. So if you have if you're within that challenge group, try to see if you can set up calls with people. Uh, you know, I've I've spoken with people in Israel. I've spoken from with people all across uh, the United States and even in Canada as well. So, again, take advantage of the opportunity to be able to have a conversation with someone that's within that 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 challenge as well. So, I did have the the link for the episode uh, within this this uh, presentation. I will be including this as well in the description. So, if you guys are interested in learning more about. Cost Segregation and, you know, Yona Weiss and their services, feel free to click in that link as well. And you can definitely do that. All right. Uh, next up is Rod Santamassimo. Uh, He's just an impressive individual. Um, Rod is definitely very well known within the commercial real estate business. He helps and coaches commercial real estate agents in particular. And now he's branched out into, uh, you know, contract cr- contractors, well, independent contractors as well, uh, to be able to help them grow their business. And so in this episode, we dove into the concepts that he discussed in his book, uh, asked, Knowing Isn't Doing, uh, which again is a phenomenal book. If you haven't had an opportunity to read it, I would highly encourage you to do so. And one of the first lessons that he talks about is running your business like a business. It's very easy when you start transitioning away from W2Work to kind of not really operate your business as a business. You, you trade having a boss, which is what you're trying to get away from, to now being your own boss, but you're your own worst boss because you don't hold yourself accountable, nor do you keep your business accountable to making sure that you reach your goals. And so he, he really harped on the idea of uh, becoming the CEO of your business and not just being an operator within your business. Uh, some of the functions that we talked about within a business that you need to take into consideration are sales, marketing, operations, HR, and finance. And we dove into each one of those sections within the interview as well. So uh, feel free to check that out in, in the episode as well. Some of the, the two big takeaways that I, that I took from the interview um, were one being the top 100. So it, those are essentially uh, your, the top 100 individuals, regardless of whether you know them or not, that you need to connect with in order to make your business grow bigger than it's ever been. Um, he describes one, one person that he, had in his top 100 being Steve Forbes, the gentleman who, who started uh, Forbes uh, magazine and apparently was a presidential candidate as well. Uh, but he talks about how uh, he was able to connect with him through the fact that he was uh, 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 notar- notable within the commercial real estate business. And Steve Forbes' daughter, I believe, was trying to get into the commercial real estate business. And so Steve actually had reached, uh, had his assistant reach out to him. And then they had an opportunity to connect through that way. And, and again, he included him as in top 100 and made sure that he was providing value and, and being a touch point with for that particular individual. Um, and and the one of the benefits also of this approach is that you start trying to become that connector. Um, there's so much value in being a person that people go to when they need something. And you can make that connection. Because now you, you remain top of mind anytime that someone thinks about, hey, I need commercial real estate or Oh, maybe, maybe even completely unrelated to real estate in general. Let's say they need a digital marketer and they know you are well-connected in town. You pretty much know everyone. You're going to be the first person they go to and say, hey, Raphael, I know I don't really have a commercial real estate need, but hey, I need a digital marketer. Can you recommend someone? You could be like, yeah, of course, I have a friend who's a digital marketer. They do great work. And here's here's someone that we can we can put you in contact with. Now you become that, that middle point so that anytime a need occurs, you are the first person they think of. And that's extremely valuable regardless of what business you're in. Along with that, we talked about building out teams and processes. Uh, this is something that I've done quite a bit over the last you know, three to six months. I'm working on hiring my first virtual assistant right now. And in order to do that, I had to make sure that I wrote out the processes that I do on a day-to-day basis. So I created these Word documents where I did a step-by-step process of everything that, that needs to be done for different processes, like how to run a meetup, for example. For my commercial real estate one-on-one meetup, I have a document. It's like a four-page document where I outline exactly what you need to do step-by-step in order to reach out to the individual to set it up on all the different social platforms, or I'm, I'm sorry, the, the uh, Eventbrite and meetup and everything else, and then share it on the, all the social platforms. And then on the day of the event, I reach out to people individually and let them know about the event. And then I send it out to my email list and, you know, all these different processes of, or steps of what I need to be, do in order to make sure that this stunt goes off without a hitch and then also recording them. So I, I utilize a software called loom where uh, I record myself doing all these different processes. And then I have it as, as a video format too. So the benefit is that if you're looking to learn or, or perform the, that, action, you have two ways to be able to consume that information. You can read it via the Word document or the, the, the PDF, however you want to look at it. And then number two is video content. So you can watch the video and see exactly what I'm doing on a step-by-step basis. So that's what he was referencing within, within uh, the meeting. Is he, he talked about writing out those processes and then also potentially including them in the video format and then outsourcing them to a virtual assistant or some form of in-person assistant as well. And he talked about how that would be of extreme value to people uh, and probably one of the first hires that you should make. So we, we dove into a lot of other things as well. So again, similar to the previous slides, I included the episode link in, in, in this particular slide. It's going to be included in the description as well. So if you'd like to learn more about Rod and what he does on a regular basis and how to grow your business, in particular, if you're in the brokerage side uh, or even in an independent contractor, this would be a must listen episode for you. All right. So this was an extremely interesting episode that we had. Uh, it was actually with Hunter Thompson. Uh, he's, he's wrote, he wrote a book on how to raise capital uh, for real estate. Uh, he had a really, really interesting backstory, uh, which he talked about at length. Uh, re- essentially what he, what happened is back in the day, uh, I believe it was like 2009 and 2010, he started the, the or worked in the concept of funds of funds. So he would raise a significant amount of capital and then he would, approach these syndicators and say hey i have two three four five million dollars and I, need, I that i would like to place with you as an quote unquote lp but in order for you know me to do this i would need some favorable terms to be to be able to um invest with you and so that was the model that he utilized back in the day and i think he continues to, to utilize to this day uh and again for those of you guys who don't know what a commercial real estate syndication is essentially what it is is that people pool money together to buy these large assets and so there's there's something known as a GP which are the people who run the deal so they they're the ones who find the deal they put the the operating team in place and then they manage the deal from start to finish meaning the acquisition renovation filling up the property and then the eventual sale and then there's limited partners LPs which are the ones who passively invest in the deal Um, and, and the funds of funds model was whereby Hunter would raise a significant amount of capital and then approach these GPs, the people who put these deals together and tried to get favorable terms as an LP for his investors and himself. So the concept of how to raise capital, because this is one thing that a lot of people have issues with. And I'm one of those people, too. I've never had to personally raise capital, and I plan to do so in the next several years. And so this was of extreme value to me was that how do you ask people for money, I mean, that's that's something that you know is very uncomfortable for a lot of people. I know it's uncomfortable for me, and so we talked about the strategy for be to be able to do that in a way so that people really just want to invest with you and they, they're, they're quote unquote throwing money at you. So, his concept was to build a brand and to build trust. Uh, he that's what he kind of does through his podcast efforts. Um, he's done it by being on other people's podcasts, he does it through writing his book and then from there he's also leveraged relationships that he's had within the market in order to establish himself as that go-to expert leader and then drip campaigns throughout the year to be able to provide value to people so that they slowly build trust with him and then come into his network and therefore over time they feel a lot more comfortable approaching him when a deal does come through that is that piques their interest Um, along with that he talked about aligning your interest with theirs. Um, So he wants to make sure that if you do invest in a deal, that you yourself are also invested in some capacity because it's very easy to just let things slide if you yourself don't have the skin in the game. And so he talked about the concept of aligning your interests with those of your investors, and that in and of itself helps to build trust with those individuals because they know that if this deal goes south, that you yourself also are going to go south with it. And and again, that'll just help with the, the building trust factor. And then finally, one of the things that I thought was extremely valuable within this, this podcast episode was to tell a story. Again, people invest with people they like and trust and people connect with people through their story. So a lot of people think, oh, well, my story is not that unique or oh, my story is not that different. But in reality, you'd be quite surprised because again, people look for things within your story to be able to connect their story to. And, and that's where the magic happens. That's when people really can say, oh, well, maybe I do connect with this person uh, on, in, on a more, not just a, a more personal level than maybe even a professional level. And so that's why I'm sa- that's why he, he, he said, please, if you can make sure you tell your story as profound as you can and as often as you can. And over time, your tribe will be attracted to you and that'll serve you well over the course of your career so. Extremely valuable episode. I would highly encourage you guys to to listen to it, especially if you're looking to raise capital in the near future. Uh, Again, here's the episode link and it's going to be in the description below. So if you guys want to take a look at it, feel free to do so. All right. So next up is Judy Fox. So, Judy Fox, for those of you guys who don't know, was my LinkedIn coach. Uh, She helped me uh, spruce up my LinkedIn presence and, you know, added, gave me some strategies in order to make sure that, you know, I became a LinkedIn uh, 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 built notoriety on LinkedIn, I should say, and I'm still working on that as it as as I currently am. But it definitely has helped since I have worked with her, and I, I have no doubt that over the next several years I'll be a very I'll have a very strong presence on LinkedIn, and and part of that I can definitely attribute to her uh, coaching and to her motivation. So as far as the LinkedIn profile is concerned, that's the first thing we talked about in this particular episode. Is that you really want to make sure that you have your title headline and everything above the fold on point. So above the fold is, is a term that was that's been utilized for many years. And essentially what it was, is if you remember, if you ever read a newspaper, what, what's considered above the fold is if you were to fold a newspaper, the first stories that are above that fold, that's what's considered above the fold. So in, in a LinkedIn profile setting, that would mean anything that you can see as soon as you go to the, the LinkedIn profile What can you see before you start scrolling down? So that would be your picture. So get a professional picture. That would be your background or cover photo. That would be your featured section, which we talked about at length within this this episode as well. So including some lead capture uh, links within your featured section. I have my book, Before You Sign That Lease, at links that you can download the ebook. I put that there and I capture people's emails for those who are interested in in leasing commercial real estate. Uh, And it can have anything... Maybe a post that, that did extremely well for you, had a couple hundred likes, that, should, that helps build trust and notoriety with you when people go to your profile and they see that you've had a, a post that has a significant amount of engagement. So those are the type of things that you want to see above the fold. And that's that's going to be you know what grabs people's attention so that as they go through the rest of your profile, they'll see your, your past experiences, they'll see the description, they'll see the recommendations that you have, and that'll help build that engagement over a period of time. All right. So next up is creating personal hashtags. Uh, this is something that she believes is going to be extremely valuable going forward. My personal hashtag is CRE uh, hashtag CRE rockstar. Uh, you can you can say hashtag, you know, whatever, right? Whatever your 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 uh, your your desire is within your your industry if you're if you're a broker, maybe hashtag uh, CRE broker or you know, hashtag CRE success, you know, whatever. But, but you, you have to have a personal hashtag and then utilize that hashtag within all the posts that you make at the bottom and, and encourage people to follow that particular hashtag. And just make sure it's industry specific so that those individuals who are interested in that and in, in following you can follow that hashtag and it's relevant to what they uh, have signed up for. And then finally, which is something that I think is probably the most profound thing that you can take away from this particular episode is creating your top 20 list. Now, what this is is a list of twenty individuals that you want to be known by. You know, these these typically are people who are, uh, you know, high influence within your industry. Whether they have a significant amount of notoriety within on, on LinkedIn, or maybe they're local to you, but they have a significant amount of notoriety within your local market. These are individuals that you want to get in front of on a regular basis, and their audience are people that you probably want to also get in front of as well. So. Why by creating your top 20 list, what, what this means is that you would go to their profile on a you know weekly basis at least and try to engage with their status statuses. So if they post something about a project that they're working on, be sure you're in there in the comments, providing some form of value and and not just saying great post or great job, actually read what they have to say and then provide something meaningful, meaningful in the way of a response. And the benefit of this is twofold. One is that they'll they'll know who you are because they'll they'll read the post and and see that you actually cared and engaged with the post and so that'll help build that that trust with you over a period of time and then the people who engage with them their audience will also know you because now they're going to read their status see you in the in the comments and then say oh who's this individual they they seem to provide some value in this particular post and so it has that two-pronged benefit and so this is obviously something that you have to do over a period of time uh, you know, I've I've been doing this over the last, you know, I would say six to twelve months, between that range, and again, I'm nowhere near where I want to be. But again, it's all about consistency, small, deliberate, positive action each and every day adds up to massive results. And so that's what I would encourage you to do uh, with this particular top twenty list. So if you guys want to listen to this episode and want to learn more about LinkedIn for commercial real estate in particular, this is definitely an episode you want to listen to. Check out the the link for the episode in the description. And also, if you're watching this on YouTube, it'll be in the description on there as well. All right. So next up is Krista Yaki. So she is a commercial real estate agent with her office. Uh, She's been with the brokerage just over a year now, and she transitioned from residential real estate to commercial real estate. And I mean, I've had, I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with residential agents looking to transition within the commercial real estate space. And I've, you know, had, had conversations with them, but Because I only ever started within commercial real estate, I didn't have that perspective to be able to offer them about what it was like to make that transition and the struggles that occurred as a result. And so I thought this is a perfect opportunity for Krista, who's a rock star, to be able to provide them with with that insight. And So we dove in in this episode to what exactly is the difference between commercial and residential brokerage, uh, dove into some of the pros and cons of of each, and then went through some of the day in the life of, of a commercial agent. Um, along with that, we talked about some of the challenges that you're going to face as a result of transitioning from residential to commercial, the main being the ramp up time. So in residential real estate, when you typically start in that, in that, in that business, it's not uncommon for you to have your first deal or two within the first several months. But in, res- in commercial real estate, that may not be the case. I, I can tell you within my first year, I made almost nothing. I think I made you know, I was on a draw. So I was able to, to draw, I think, $20,000 in my first year. But if I was by myself and had no, no draw to, to 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 have to help me out, I would have made like 12 grand my first year. So the ramp up time is, is pretty significant. And that's with me getting out there and talking and calling people and stuff like that. So, you know, it, it takes a lot longer to get going than in a residential setting. And so that can deter a lot of people, because they get disheartened by the fact that they're not seeing immediate results. And therefore, They just go on to something else. Along with that, we talked about learning the lingo because, you know, in residential real estate, especially in particular locally. And and again, I'm talking more local to Louisville, Kentucky. I cannot speak to every single market because I don't know all the laws and regulations within your market. But in particular, locally, uh, there's not really such thing as a a repair request. So in, in a in a residential setting, that's a big part of the process. And in commercial real estate, you can request repairs. But there's no formal document that says, oh, the, this is exactly what you need to do in order to make sure that you submit this request properly to the other party. It is essentially exchanged via email. You say, hey, here's, here's what we would like done, blah, 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 blah. And so that was pretty much a shock to Krista when she came over because she said, whoa, there's no repair requests? Like, I, it, it, I just don't understand why there's not this formalized process for how this works. And, again, things take a lot longer. There's definitely more more things you have to consider as you're going through the process of, of acquiring a commercial property, in particular on the environmental end, and even some of the legal legal uh, cons- uh, parts of, of the process as well are different. And So trying to learn the lingo and learning the processes was something she had to do. And then developing relationships. Uh, again, this is very much a, a tight-knit industry, if, if, I, if I had to describe it. It's been particularly locally here to Louisville. I'm not sure if that's the case everywhere else, but I would imagine that it does have that type of a component. There's probably only, you know, three to 400 commercial agents within the entire market. We got about 1.5 million people in in Louisville. I would say maybe three to 400 commercial agents are actually active within the market. And of those individuals, the ones who are transacting the most maybe 100 and 150. And so it is very much a much more tight-knit community than let's say residential real estate, where there's thousands and thousands of residential agents. And so building those strong relationships with brokers within your market is much more valuable in the in the commercial space than it is on the in the residential space. so that could be something that's kind of kind of different than what you're used to experiencing on the residential front. And then finally we talked about improving or increasing the diversity within the industry. Uh, in particular in commercial real estate, I've noticed is that it is very male dominated. And along with that, from a minority standpoint, there's not a significant amount of minorities in, in, in the business. And so we talked about ways that we thought we could improve that going forward. Because again, I think the more diversity we have in the industry, the better the, the diversity of ideas come into play. And it creates an opportunity for the next generation of individuals who, you know, never thought commercial real estate was an, an opportunity for them. They see someone else that looks like them, that acts like them, and and you know, has a background like them doing it, now it becomes more realistic for them to take to, to pursue that opportunity as well. And so I think long term there's a val- a significant value with helping improve the diversity within the industry. And that's some of the things we talked about with Krista on this episode. So if you guys would like to learn a little bit more about this episode, again, feel free to click in the in the description below and it will provide you with that insight as well. All right. So next up is Lucas Lindsay. Uh, he's a good buddy of mine from college. We were in the same fraternity and uh, he's just an overall brilliant, intelligent guy. And we had a very good conversation about adaptive reuse. Uh, just to give you background on Lucas, he was involved with a incubator in Tallahassee, Florida. During his time there, he pursued an adaptive reuse project, which was a gas station project. They bought an old abandoned gas station and then they converted it into a uh, you know an outdoor dining and restaurant area, so there were two two restaurants that that eventually ultimately landed within that that project and they had this little outdoor patio area where people can hang out and engage and have have drinks and whatever else so it was a really cool project that he took on while he was at Tallahassee and now he is in Phoenix, Arizona, working for venue projects, which is a large uh, developer in town that focuses on strictly adaptive reuse projects so you may be wondering exactly what adaptive reuse is. Essentially what it is is you take an existing structure and then reinvent it into something new. Uh, So in the case of the gas station project, they took an old abandoned gas station and converted it into a restaurant slash outdoor patio area where people can hang out and engage Uh, some of the projects they were involved in previously uh, with his, with his uh, development company involved taking two office buildings that were kind of old and, run down and converting them into a boutique hotel bringing new life to existing structures essentially is what adaptive reuse is so some of the challenges that 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 developers face as they're taking on some of the adaptive reuse projects involve environmental concerns as, as an example uh his gas station project luckily the person who owned the the, the gas station prior to him uh was an environmental engineer and so they actually had remediated the, the, the property before Lucas and his partners had an opportunity to purchase the property. But in the case where they don't address the environmental concerns, that could be a significant issue. Uh, so they're in a gas station, there they could be under, underground storage tanks. There could have been some leaks on the property, which would means there were some harmful chemicals that were deposited there. that that are now making that whole land contaminated and there's there's going to be a significant amount of remediation involved potentially and so that could be very expensive and cost prohibitive so those are some of the things you need to consider number two is zoning challenges again if you're taking a structure and converting it into a new use that new use may not be that may not be possible with that particular zoning and so there's going to be situations whereby you're having to go to the local leadership uh, of, of, of the municipality and try to pitch the idea to say, hey, we want to bring this particular concept to this area, but this involves some sort of zoning change. So getting the, the, the political side figured out so that you can actually get this property rezoned so that you could take on this new project is also a challenge. And along with that, uh, neighborhood opposition. So if, if the use is unpopular with, for the neighborhood, uh, so if there's a significant amount of people within that neighborhood who don't want that use in that area, you can start facing some opposition on that front. Here locally uh, in, in Louisville, there's been, uh, there's been a Top Golf that's been trying to locate in this particular area within Louisville for a long period of time. And they've had a, a vocal minority of, of, of residents within this area that do not want the Top Golf there because they think there's going to be light pollution. They're, they think there's going to be people driving through their neighborhood at all hours of the night. And so they've they've been putting up a significant opposition to locating the Top Golf there for many years. And so again, that's just one of the things that they've had to deal with, um, having to deal with, you know, repurposing or or, or creating uh, Top Golf in that particular area. And 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 again, in, in most adaptive reuse projects, there could be that component you have to deal with. And so that's something to consider. Finally, we talked about some of the ways to identify these opportunities. Uh, we talked about you know. Looking on the MLS, uh, sometimes you can find these opportunities on the MLS, especially those that have been sitting for a quite, quite a period of time because people don't necessarily have the vision of what this, pro, this new building or this, this vacant rundown building could be. Uh, talking to brokers and then other investors as well, the, the, the deal that they worked on with the two office buildings involved um, they, they owned one of the office buildings and then another group, investor, group of investors owned the other office building and they just so happened to be right next to each other. So it was a great opportunity for them to say, hey, look, let's team up. Let's put these buildings together and see if we can make something special here. So again, just another opportunity to, to make a deal happen by getting multiple people together and then work out a deal that, that is favorable for both parties. So again, this, this episode was of extreme value. I always learn a lot every time I talk to Lucas. If you guys are listening to this and you want to learn more and listen to the episode again, the link's going to be in the description. If you're listening a, on a podcast format, again, it'll be in the description there. And if you're watching this on YouTube, it'll be on the description there as well. All right, so those are some of the top lessons we learned in 2022. Um, again, we if, we if we covered every single speaker that, that was in uh, the, the, the Commercial Real Estate 101 meetup, we would have been here for many, many hours. And again, I could, I could talk even more about the other speaker, the, the, the speakers we just discussed. Uh, I could talk at length about all the things that I learned from them throughout our discussion. Uh, as far as lessons that you guys have learned in 2021, I would love to hear it if you could provide them in the comments below. Uh, again, we're all, we're all trying to learn and grow here. And I think 2022 is gonna be a phenomenal year for all of us. Uh, but if you guys could provide some feedback, uh, regarding how you like this particular meetup and also some of the top lessons you've learned in 2021, whether that's either this meetup or in your own uh, professional life, please provide in the comments below. Again, we really do appreciate all your support throughout 2021. I think 2022 is gonna be a phenomenal year and we have some great meetup speakers that are, that are already scheduled for 2022. And we're gonna have many, many more uh, for you guys to be able to engage with and learn from uh, going forward. Again, if, if, you, if you like this, this channel and you learn a lot from it, please like and subscribe if you're watching this on YouTube. If you guys are listening to this on a podcast format, please leave us a five-star review. It makes sure that more and more people can actually listen to this podcast and learn the many lessons that we have just discussed and hopefully many more in 2022. So don't forget to leave your comments below as far as the lessons you've learned, and we'll see you all next time.